I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. Listener discretion is advised. We received a letter. Dear Mr. Haynes, I'm here in jail. I've been accused of a murder. I don't know anything about it. Will you please come help me? Signed, Raymond George Sneed. In England, we couldn't talk to Ray without a police officer right there with us. So as far as we were concerned, he was Raymond George Sneed. And when he came back to the United States, he was brought in on a charter flight with FBI agents and all of that, and came in late, late one evening. It was dark. And they landed at the far side of the airport. And police cars and vans came to the airplane to get the great mystery man because there was some doubt as to his identity in the first place. And certainly there was doubt as to whether he was the leader of a revolutionary army or, or what was going on. The great mystery man was grabbed from his airplane, put in a caravan of vans and police cars, and taken to the Shelby County, Tennessee jail. And in that jail, there was a special floor that had not been developed yet, old concrete floor. And on that floor in the jail was a jail within a jail. It was a cage. It was a four-sided cage with the heavy traditional iron bars. When he got there that night, my dad and I went to see him for the first time in the United States. By then, the whole circumstances were such that there was probably rightly a bit of paranoia on the defense side. My dad was a very savvy man. He deemed the most secure place and the jail was the shower stall. So the first time we met Ray in the United States, my dad, Ray, and I were sitting knee to knee on the floor of that shower stall. And the first thing out of anybody's mouth was my dad looking at this client of ours and saying, who are you? I called the union hall. I said, it's a matter of life and death. I said, I think these people are planning to kill Dr. King. The authorities would parade, oh, we found a gun that James Earl Ray bought in Birmingham that killed Dr. King. Except it wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King. James Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The plan was to get King to the city because they wanted it handled in Memphis where Daddy and them could handle it. And I have lived with it so long, my children, they, they scared for me. The Lord told me to not to worry. I've been wanting to tell it all my life. I'm Bill Kleber, and this is The MLK Tapes. At the top of the episode, you heard Judge Arthur Haynes Jr. describing the first time he met James Earl Ray, the man accused of killing Martin Luther King. Haynes grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and after high school, he went to Princeton and then to law school at the University of Alabama, where he graduated in the spring of 1967. 
He then joined his father's law practice. Art Haynes Sr. was a fierce segregationist who had been mayor of Birmingham from 1961 to 63. In his first year in office, he closed over 100 parks, playgrounds, and swimming pools rather than integrate them as required by a federal court order. He was also mayor when Sheriff Bull Connor set dogs and fire hoses on peaceful demonstrators, many of them children. Haynes was, by a narrow vote, put out of office in 1963, and he began a practice in criminal law. In 1965, civil rights activist Viola Liuzzo was shot dead while driving participants back and forth in the Selma to Montgomery Freedom March, and three Klan members were charged with the murder. When their first attorney died, Art Haynes assumed their defense and won the case by way of a hung jury, though the men were later convicted in a federal court. A year later, Art Haynes Jr. would join his father, and in June of 1968, they got a letter from James Earl Ray in London asking for help. As a criminal defense attorney, more often than not, you defend criminals. In the case of Art Haynes and his father, they defended some of the worst, including Bob Chambliss, who murdered four little girls when he blew up the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. But Chambliss would be the very last criminal that Art Jr. would defend. The whole thing made him so sick inside that he turned his back on criminal law, left his father's practice, and went on to have a distinguished legal career. He served 18 years as a judge in Alabama, and when he left the bench, he became an adjunct professor at the University of Alabama Law School, and he began a civil practice that specializes in arbitration. I sat with him in his law office in Birmingham. I'm here to talk to you today because at a particular moment in time, you and your father, the late Arthur Haynes Sr., became the defense attorneys for one James Earl Ray. You graduated from law school in 67, and one year later, found yourself representing the man who was accused of murdering Martin Luther King. I was very well aware that uh, I was part of history. I also knew that statistically, at any rate, I would outlive all the other participants. Haynes then told me the story you heard about getting the letter from some guy in London asking for help with a murder he knew nothing about. The man writing the letter turned out to be James Earl Ray, and the man murdered was Martin Luther King. Not having any idea of where the story would lead, Haynes, father and son, decided to take the case. Over the next four months, they would be the ones, and the only ones, in contact with Ray, and they would be the ones getting the first look at the evidence. Which is why what Art Haynes Jr. has to say about it today is important. I asked him about Ray. Was he the person you expected to meet? What, what were your impressions of him? Ray is every man and no man. He was invisible. He was remarkably nondescript. You could dress him in a tuxedo and send him to a debutante ball or dress him in, in ragged sweat clothes and send him to a homeless camp, and he would be equally in place at either place. A remarkably colorless person. Did Ray ever say to you that he shot Martin Luther King? Never. He denied it from day one, moment one, until the last moment. He did wind up pleading guilty, but he told me later that he had done that because he realized that the lawyer who took over for us had done nothing to prepare the case for trial. Did you, when you took over the case, begin your own investigation? Did you interview witnesses? Oh, absolutely. Good gracious. We had a complete trial file. I guess I probably talked to every wino in Memphis. So we worked on that case from his arrest in June of 1968, solidly until the trial in the fall of 68. And you thought you had a pretty good chance going to trial? We were absolutely confident. What was the evidence that the authorities had that they say proved that James O'Ray murdered Martin Luther King? Well, see, that's the problem. There was a lot of talk. For instance, the authorities would parade, oh, we found a gun that James Earl Ray bought in Birmingham. There's no doubt about it. It was the rifle that Ray bought in Birmingham. It simply wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King. Moreover, perhaps the only legitimate witness in the whole area was a man named Knipes, who ran the amusement shop where the 
package was thrown down. Mr. Knipes was prepared to testify that the package was thrown down that contained the rifle before the shot that killed Dr. King was fired. When Judge Haynes refers to the package, he is talking about a strange collection of things, including some books, cans of beer, a small radio, underwear, and a rifle with raised fingerprints, all of it tied up in a bedspread and found on the street in front of a small store owned by Mr. Guy Knipe. When you talked to Mr. Knipe, did he have a clear recollection of the package? Well, sure. Yes. And he said that uh, he believes it was 10 minutes before the shot that the package was dropped off. And that would make sense because the street would be empty then and somebody could do that and not be seen. Do you believe he was sincere? Oh, I, absolutely. He, he had no motive or stake in it and truthfully was not particularly excited to be involved, but he was willing to be. You'll see the, the fire station overlooks the Lorraine Motel. That fire station was packed with city policemen, federal agents, uh, spectators, curiosity seekers, and others who were looking out over the Lorraine Motel to see the activities of Dr. King and his entourage. The moment the shot was fired and Dr. King went down, that fire station erupted like a beehive, police going in all directions. The very idea that someone could fire that shot, stop in a room, very carefully wrap that package, put the gun in it, and tie it, and then drop it, is, in our way of thinking, simply preposterous and unbelievable. When they put their so-called trial on, which wasn't a trial at all, it was just a, a show where they brought forth what evidence they said they would have brought forth had there been a trial, and in that proceeding, they referred to their eyewitness, one Charlie Stevens. Oh, good gracious. Charlie Stevens was drunk as a goat when Dr. King was killed. We had a taxi driver who was going to testify. Stevens had called a cab, and the cab driver refused to let him in the cab because he was too drunk to ride in a cab. So if your star witness is too drunk to ride in a cab, we felt his testimony was worth nothing. Tell me, what was the official authorities, what was their official motive? Why did Ray kill King, according to them? We were never quite clear on that. There was some nibble that there was a convict in Missouri who was going to say that Ray had made some racist comments years before, but it was a very, very weak and probably untrue declaration. Had Ray ever done engaged in violence that you know of? Not that we know of. He, he was, of course, a, a petty criminal. He had no history of, of violence that we were aware of. We should note that James Earl Ray did own a pistol, though he did not carry it around in his everyday life. He might brandish the weapon during a holdup, but there is no record of him ever shooting someone. Now back to Art Haynes. I'm telling you, Bill, Martin Luther King was not on James Earl Ray's radar screen, part of his life or his interest at all. A convict doing time is interested in his daily bread and survival. That was James Earl Ray. He had, had no interest in politics or world affairs or, or anything. We tried everything in the world to evoke any kind of reaction from Ray, uh, ranging from Dr. King deserved to die to whoever killed him uh, should be summarily executed. Nothing. No reaction one way or the other. Ray told Art Haynes from the start that he did not shoot King, and Haynes was unable to find in Ray even the semblance of a motive for such a crime. Of course, the press found it easy to brand him as a racist, and when they wanted to put a little frosting on the cake, they would say he was a hardened criminal. In that regard, it might be useful to review Ray's rap sheet. 1948, discharged from the Army for failure to adapt to military life. 1949, sentenced to 90 days for stealing a typewriter. 1952, 
sentenced to two years in prison for stealing $11 from a cab driver. 1955, served three years in Leavenworth for stealing money orders. 1959, sentenced to 20 years Missouri State Pen for stealing $100 from a supermarket. That's it, except for a bunch of escape attempts. A rap sheet, of course, is not a complete record of a person's criminal activity. It's just the record of crimes he's been caught at. So we can assume from this list that Ray pulled off other robberies and holdups. But the list does illustrate the kinds of crimes he was inclined to commit. And nowhere does it appear that he wants to be a famous criminal. And why would that matter? It would matter because of what William Bradford Huey said in an article for Look Magazine following Ray's plea of guilty. Huey had been putting up money for Ray's defense, and in return he got the inside track on Ray's story by way of handwritten accounts by Ray of where he had been and what he had done. Huey had written two previous articles for Look where he said he would show that there was a conspiracy to assassinate King. But Huey suddenly changed course and in his final article said that James Earl Ray alone had murdered King. But why did Ray kill King? Did he hate black people? Did he hate King? No. According to Huey, Ray felt insecure about his position in the world, so he wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he was the one who killed King. This was the explanation that the nation received by way of Look Magazine from a man who had inside information from Ray himself. But Ray never told him that. Huey just came to it on his own. But Huey never spent any time at all with Ray. But Judge Haynes had spent many hours with him. What did he think? Did Ray ever demonstrate anything to you to, to indicate that he wanted to be known as the man who killed King? Why, certainly not. He denied it vehemently from the beginning. He was an escaped con. He didn't care. He just didn't want to go back to the penitentiary. So how was it that Ray came to Memphis? Well, his brother Jerry and Ray himself are about to tell us. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we came up real poor uh, during the uh, Depression days. We lived out on the parcels, uh, and we uh, just handed people. 
These are the words of Jerry Ray, James Earl Ray's younger brother, testifying at the civil trial in 1999. The court recording here was muddy, so we've taken the liberty of reading Ray's words from the trial transcript. We came up real poor during the Depression days. We lived out on a farm most of the time. But back there in the Depression, everybody had it bad. James had been born in 1928 in Alton, Illinois, the oldest of eight. His mother, Lucille, was 19. James was followed by his sister Marjorie, brother John, and then Jerry. There were seven years between Jerry and James. Asked if he had noticed any signs of racial hatred in his brother, Jerry said he hadn't. No, he never did have no uh, hostility towards any race. Not only blacks, but Hispanics or anybody. The one thing he tried to do is live and let live. Before he went into the army, he was a hard worker, and he just lived a life of crime after that. It's true that James Earl Ray did not have an arrest record before entering the army in 1946, but he was already traveling a difficult road. He had to do first grade twice because of some forgery trouble where the family had to leave town. His father was frequently drunk and his mother was always pregnant. She gave birth eight times and lost Marjorie when the six-year-old caught fire standing next to a stove. James left school in the middle of eighth grade and went to live with his grandparents, where he would sometimes spend evenings with his Uncle Earl, evenings that often ended up at Big Marie's brothel, where Ray would sometimes run errands for the girls, as he called them. The behavior he fell into is what he had seen all his life. Jerry Ray watched his older brother from a distance of seven years, but he did have one insight about James that is worth mentioning. If he uh, makes friends with somebody, he's easily led around. Easily led around. That's what his brother said about him. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, James met a guy named Rife who had stolen some postal money orders. Rife recruited Ray to help cash them until they got caught. James went to federal prison in Leavenworth. He got out three years later and ran into a guy named Owens, and they robbed a grocery store for $120. But they were caught 20 minutes later because a witness notified the police about his vehicle. For that robbery, Ray was sentenced to 20 years. James hated prison life, and his record is filled with various attempts to escape, which always put more years on. Enough so that in the spring of 1967, after having served six years, he still had 18 years left on his 20-year sentence. But James came up with yet another scheme, and he rode out of Jefferson City Prison in style, hidden under loaves of bread in a bakery truck. It required the help and probably the permission of some people on the inside, and James would never say who those people were. After his escape, Ray said that he walked along a railroad for six days until his feet were swollen and bloody. Then he caught a bus to Chicago and met with his brothers John and Jerry. It is also possible, perhaps likely, that Ray was picked up by his brother John somewhere along the way, and the two of them drove to Chicago, where the brothers gave him some money, and James answered an ad for work at a restaurant. Ray took the work under his brother's name, John Raines, and he used his brother's social security number. The plan was to earn enough money to buy an old car and drive to Canada. James worked hard at the Indian Trail restaurant and won a pay raise and the respect of the owners, Clara and Harvey Klingman. There was something about him that they liked. After Ray had been captured and brought back to Memphis, Clara Klingman was shocked to hear that the person she knew as John Raines was really James Earl Ray, the man who had murdered Martin Luther King. She could not believe that he had harbored such invisible hatred. She had seen none of it. Whatever he is and whatever he has done, she would say, while he was here, we saw a spark of dignity in John Raines. Doing so well, Ray might have stayed on at the restaurant, but he was a wanted man and his social security number was not his. So after eight weeks, he left, bought an old car, and went to Montreal where he hoped to discover what he needed to get a Canadian passport. Ray had been in Montreal just a couple of days when he was sitting at a table in a Neptune bar. A man approached, pulled out a chair, and sat down. From this point on, the voice of James Earl Ray that you will hear 
is from a deposition he gave in 1996 and answers to questions asked by attorney Lewis Garrison. Tell us, uh, Mr. Ray, where you first met the gentleman named Raoul. Uh, that would have been in, in, in Montreal, Canada, in uh, a place called uh, Neptune Bar in, in Montreal, in East Montreal. And what was your what was your person going to Montreal? What did you intend to do when you got there? I tried to get tried to, to uh, get some travel documents and leave the country. How long had you been there when you met Raoul at this uh, Neptune Bar? It was just days after I'd been there. He hadn't been over. I say week, less than a week, one a week. Yeah, yeah, probably a week, six, seven days. I, I wouldn't want to get pinned down on just how many days. And when he came in, what uh, what attracted you to him, or how did you get the conversation started with him? I, I didn't start the conversation with him. He sat down and started the conversation with me. We were just talking about general things. And, uh, and uh, you and this uh, gentleman started up a conversation with general things, such as weather, something like that. And uh, how long did you sit there with him? Well, I don't know. It wasn't too long. I mean, I mean, I've had hundreds of conversations bars with people. That's what usually gets me to country. But we didn't sit there too long. I don't think we just started talking. And I was. Can you tell us just um, about the role, about uh, what size person was he? Was he five foot ten, uh, five foot eleven, or five foot five? Was he taller than you, or shorter than you? Well, I'm five foot ten. I. I just assuming he's around five foot eight or nine or maybe a little somewhere in that general area. It's hard to estimate people's weight, but uh, I didn't think he really uh, weighed a whole lot. Uh, I thought he weighed about 140 or 45 pounds, but I, I just can't, can't be certain on someone who weighed like that. Oh, come on, here you go. <coughs> I had a kind of a, it was a dark hair, uh, dark with his, what which I call a slight red tint in it. The, uh, Talk like you had been someone that had been uh, grew up in Canada or in Detroit or someone in uh, uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, or what would you? What was your impression of it? Well, he has a, a somewhat Spanish accent, and I've had a lot of association with Mexicans. I've been to Mexico before, and uh, in Lemsworth, I knew a lot of Mexicans. I used practice. I tried to learn to speak Spanish one time, so I, I was certain that he used to came from Spanish-speaking country. Ray said that in their first meeting, he had mentioned that he wanted travel documents. Raul said he might be able to help with that. They agreed to meet again and did so a day or two later. When the conversation became specific, Raul told Ray that he could help him get a Canadian passport and other documents he might need. But it would take some time. In the meanwhile, he had some work to offer if Ray were interested. It involved carrying some things across the border in Ray's car. According to Ray, Raoul's promise to get him the documents he desired was the very thing he most wanted to hear. So he ended up crossing the border a couple of times, carrying things hidden under the back seat of his car. Ray didn't know what he had been transporting for Raoul, but he was well paid for his time. However, the promised documents were not produced, but they were still being offered. So when Raoul said he wanted Ray to go to Alabama, where he would buy Ray a much nicer car to be used for a few errands, Ray agreed. So one day in late August, Jerry Ray got a call from James and agreed to meet him in Chicago, where James said he'd give Jerry his 62 Plymouth and that Jerry could put him on a train south. Here is Jerry's memory of that meeting. We spent the night together, had breakfast together, and he was talking to me. He was all happy. I mean, he, was, he had plenty of money on him. So uh, he said, I'm going to go down to Birmingham and buy a late model car. He said, you can have this. He said, I'm working out. And he mentioned Raul. I can't exactly remember how the Raul came in. I worked for a guy named Raul or something like that. Did he tell you what the job was? No, I knew it was something illegal. I figured it was a note for car man or something. You know, I didn't know what it was. And, and uh, he said he worked this, uh, you know, there's a, a, a guy called Raul. It's uh, it, to get that money. Um, so we get out of the country, we get out of the Canada and the United States. Did he ever mention Dr. Martin Luther King? Uh, the King, the King name never came up. And uh, the last thing James was thinking about was, uh, you know, uh, Jackson or King or Kennedy or any of that people because he was trying to stay out of prison. So James went to Birmingham where he said Raul gave him $2,000 to buy a white 66 Mustang. 
What followed was weeks of crazy trips in and out of Mexico, spare tires that were exchanged for other spare tires. James believed that he was running drugs and money, but he didn't know. He just did as he was told. Then the trips dried up and James ceased to believe that there were any travel documents coming his way. So he told Raul, who seemed fine with it, that he planned to go to Los Angeles. And so he went to L.A., where he stayed from November to March, taking dance lessons and a course in bartending. Some months later, Ray said he got a letter from Raul saying he wanted to meet in New Orleans. According to Ray, he met with Raul, who said he wanted him to come back east. Ray was running low on money, so he agreed. When Ray got to Birmingham, Raul said there was some sort of gun deal coming down, and he needed Ray to purchase a rifle to show to a prospective customer. And while none of this made a lot of sense, one must remember that Ray had already done some number of things for Raul that didn't seem to make sense. But he hadn't asked questions, and he had always been paid. So in pursuit of the needed rifle, Ray goes to a sports store in Birmingham named Aero Marine. Again, here's Ray and Lewis Garrison. Can you tell you what type of, of a uh, weapon he wants you to take a look at? Well, when I got there, uh, uh, I asked for a deer rifle, I think it was. Okay, why did you ask for that? That's the type of rifles he used, but I, I don't know too much about rifles, so... Uh, what kind of rifle did you take a look at? He probably gave me some directions, but it, it wasn't good enough where I could uh, tell the salesman exactly what I wanted. Did you write them down? Did I? Did he write them down for you? Uh, no, no, he didn't write them down. So you walked in and didn't tell him what kind of rifle you wanted, what brand, what caliber, what anything. You just said, I want a deer rifle. Yeah, I told him I was going to hunt deer. So he made my brother law and I'd like to look some rifles. And he said, he said this is uh, what you want. This is about the best thing out. He said, where's that effect? And I said, okay, that's what I want. So, so the store mounted a scope on the rifle, which turned out to be a quite fine 243 Winchester. Ray left the store with that gun. Okay, when you get back to the hotel, was he waiting for you? Yes. Anyone with him? No. Okay. And uh, did you take the gun in? Yes. Uh, the hotel, what did he say about it? And he just said it was the wrong type of a rifle. The wrong caliber, the wrong brand, the wrong what? I think he just said it was the wrong type. Okay, that was his word. Yes. Okay, did you ask him what he, what he meant by that or what he really wanted? No, I didn't. I, I had a brochure, the salesman gave me a brochure, so I just uh, handed him the brochure and told him to pick out what he wanted, and I'd go back and... Uh, you mean the brochure of several rifles? Yes. Raul pointed to a certain gun, and Ray called the store and asked if he could make the exchange. They said yes, but that he should come in the following day. According to Ray, the next time he met Raul was at the New Rebel Motel, just outside of Memphis, on the stormy night before King was killed. Raul left with a gun, and Ray says he never saw it again. So what to make of this? In many ways, it's a quintessential James Earl Ray story. It doesn't make sense. None of it. If there was a gun deal, what purpose would be served to show up with a rifle that anyone could buy in a store? And was Ray really such a dope when it comes to guns? It seems that he was. Bill Pepper talked to the guy who sold Ray the rifle. I spoke to, the, to Don Woods, who uh, managed the store, runs the store. I think I saw Donald again about uh, three, four months ago. We were, he said, "This guy knew absolutely nothing about guns. This is incredible. You know, he knew nothing." So, some guy who knows nothing about guns comes in to buy a rifle, and he's pleased to take whatever is offered, and leaves the store happy as a clam. But then, an hour or so later, he calls and says he needs to exchange the gun. But why? In the official version of the crime, Ray was completely on his own. So who was unhappy with the gun? For 10 years, no one even tried to answer this question. But to their credit, the House committee finally saw the problem. Gun number one, they said, being exchanged for gun number two, showed, quote, significant signs of unwitting aid or knowing complicity in the assassination itself. So finally, this crazy gun exchange story merits the interpretation that there was at least another person. And the House committee had a suspect in mind. And it wasn't Raul. It was Ray's brother, Jerry. In support of this idea, they offered a few casual comments that James had made along the way. In California, 
James apparently told the woman he was going east to see his brother. And later at the gun store, he told the salesman that he was going hunting with his brother. But of course, neither of these statements is evidence of anything. And Jerry Ray was working in Chicago then, and for all this to work, he kind of needed to be in Birmingham. To their credit, the House committee did try to deal with this. They said in their report that Jerry Ray worked from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., and if he had Thursdays off, he could, quoting here, conceivably have gone to Birmingham, given advice on the initial rifle purchase on Friday afternoon, and returned to Chicago in time to be on the job by 11 p.m. that night. So apparently it was possible. It just seems like a lot of trouble to go to to advise your older brother on a gun purchase. And it must have felt the same way to the House Committee because a couple of sentences later, they suggest that perhaps Jerry didn't come down to Birmingham after all. That maybe the entire advising consent took place over the phone. They then leave it to us to imagine the conversation. If we were to set the House Committee solution to this riddle aside for the moment, and were to accept James' explanation that includes Raoul, then what does wrong type or wrong gun mean? Well, the first rifle was a 243 Winchester, an excellent hunting gun and perfectly adequate for killing a human if that's what you wanted to do. The second, a Remington 306 Game Master, fired a larger bullet so in this instance might be considered more ideal for killing a person. But is that what Raoul meant when he said wrong gun? Doesn't seem likely, because if Raoul and others were involved, the murder was a planned event. And if it was a planned event, then the shooter, whoever he was, would surely not agree to a plan that relied upon the arrival of a weapon to be purchased the day before by some guy seems a little casual for the importance of the event. So if the newly bought gun is not going to be the murder weapon, wrong gun takes on a different meaning. If the purpose of the gun Ray bought is to connect Ray to the murder, then the 243 Winchester is truly the wrong gun. If King was to be killed by a 30 caliber bullet, a throwdown weapon that could not fire such a bullet would give up the game. Though he did not know why, Ray had to go back and change the gun. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Okay, where were you in April 4th, 1960? I was in Memphis, Tennessee. You were in Memphis before the... No, I've never been there, no. Ray told attorney Lewis Garrison that on the evening of April 3rd, Raoul stopped by to see him at the New Rebel Motel just outside of Memphis. Raoul took the new rifle that Ray had purchased and told Ray to meet him at 3.30 the next day at Jim's Grill, which was 422 and a half South Main. The address was a little funny, so Ray wrote it down. Then he spoke of the next day. On April 4th, I, I think I, I checked out the motel. I just guessed about uh, 11 o'clock or whenever they run you out of that place. It's too early to go to you know, have this meeting set up. Mm-hmm. On the outside of Memphis, outskirts of Memphis, I say I had a, I was getting ready to come back and, and uh, have this meeting. And I had a flat tire, so I had to fix it. So uh, where were you when they had a flat tire? There's somewhere south of Memphis, but I'm not certain it's where it was at. Ray said he removed the tire and put on the spare and then drove into Memphis. It took a little exploring and he had to ask for directions. But he did end up at Jim's Grill, and Raoul was not there. Ray had left his car some distance away and thought to retrieve it. When he returned, he parked it right outside the grill. And then when I went in this time, uh, Raoul wasn't there this time. He seemed mainly interested in the Mustang. So when we went out the door, uh, he wanted me to rent a room upstairs. He said, the lady up there, I subsequently learned her name was Bessie Brewer. Uh, I told her I want, I'd like to rent a room for her. A week, I think it was. She had two rooms, so she showed me uh, uh, two different rooms. Uh, one of them was a sleeping room, and one of them was uh, uh, some type of room where you cook in. So I told her I, I was just interested in sleeping room, so she ran, she ran in the sleeping room. I wasn't up there too long. Uh, Raul would come up there, and uh, we started talking, and he said that we might be around her two or three days, a uh, couple of days, and he said I should bring them my uh, clothing everything I had in the in the room, but uh, I, I didn't do that. I, but I did bring an overnight case up there, and uh, and I think I bought a something to sleep on or something. I think it was a sheet or something. Raoul then sent Ray on an errand to buy a pair of infrared binoculars. The inference being that this was somehow part of the gun deal. But the store Ray was sent to only had common binoculars, so Ray bought a pair of those. And when he returned to the room. Raoul didn't seem to care. It was approaching 6 o'clock, and Raoul suggested that Ray clear out for a while, maybe go see a movie. So Ray left. From this point on in the story, you can flip a coin. According to the House Select Committee, Ray told his lawyer, Art Haynes Sr., that, quote, at approximately 6 p.m. on April 4th, he was sitting in his parked Mustang in front of 422 and a half South Main Street when Raoul came running out of the rooming house, jumped in the back of the car, threw a white sheet over himself, and told Ray to drive away. After they'd driven a few blocks, Raoul jumped out, never to be seen again. But according to Ray, that was a false story. He had become distrustful of Bradford Huey, the writer, who was paying for access to his story, because Ray felt that he was sharing everything Ray said with the FBI. So Ray decided to throw him a curveball and made up the story of driving away with Raoul. Perhaps not the smartest thing to do, but it was for Ray, certainly in character. What really happened, according to Ray, was that he went to the gas station looking to fix his tire. And then I got to think about I had a flat tire uh, earlier early that day, so I, um, I thought I'd get fixed. So I, I walked back down to the room house and uh, got the Mustang, and then uh, I pulled out of, out of the uh, way in front of the Jim Grill. After driving several blocks, I turned right, and I think I went either one or two blocks down there. I turned right again. It was my intention to try to get the tire fixed and then, then uh, go park right where I was. Evidence does exist to support Ray's gas station account. In 1993, 25 years after the murder, Bill Pepper found at the bottom of a drawer in the police files evidence that had never been shared with anyone. They were official statements made to the FBI by two men, Ray Hendricks and Bill Reed. On the day King was killed, the two men were at Jim's Grill late in the afternoon. They left together at around 5.30. Both of these statements were read into the record at the 99 civil trial. 
What we will do here is read the statement given to the FBI by Mr. Hendricks. Mr. Hendricks commented that when he left Jim's grill, he forgot his jacket and had to return for the jacket. He said he learned later that while he was getting his jacket, Bill Reed looked at a white Mustang that was parked almost in front of Jim's grill. He stated, however, when he and Bill Reed approached the intersection of Vance and South Main Street, Bill Reed pulled him back from the curb because the car was turning the corner. He said that this car was a white Mustang, and after the car turned the corner, Bill Reed commented to him that this was the Mustang that was parked in front of Jim's grill, which he looked at while he, Hendricks, was retrieving his jacket. Neither Hendricks nor Reed could say who was driving, though both said there was only one person in the car, and Reed said that the driver was not young, but not old. Reed also described the color of the Mustang as off-white, which would be a strong indication that it was Ray's off-white Mustang that he saw making the turn, the same car that he looked at in front of Jim's grill. The best estimate of the encounter on Vance Street would be somewhere near 545. This would conform with Ray's account of driving to a gas station at that time. There has never been any explanation as to why this evidence had been kept hidden. By law, it should not have been. And if James L. Ray had had a trial, such evidence might have been sufficient to establish the reasonable doubt required for Ray's acquittal. And what about the tire? According to Ray, he never got it fixed that day. When he got to the gas station and talked to the attendant, the man said he didn't have the time just then. So according to Ray, he headed back to Main Street, But when he got there, he saw all kinds of commotion from the place he had just come from. I looked down Main Street and it looked like three, four individuals or policemen running around down there. I think, I believe a squad car, a police car was blocking off the intersection or blocking off the street and something looked like he's waving around, so waving his arms around and possibly waving people off. So I just turned left to turning right and finally I come out on a, a, a Main Street. Ray was an escaped convict. Any contact with the police was unwelcome. So he did not need a lot of incentive to drive away and ask questions later. And his radio in the car was on. His boat came over the radio saying that the uh, uh, Reverend Martin Luther King had been shot, so uh, I didn't pay too much attention to that, but I kept on driving. And it wasn't too long after that, it said uh, uh, they were looking for a white man and a white Mustang in connection with the shooting of uh, Reverend King. So, uh, I decided then that I could, you know, get out of Dodge, so to speak. So instead of uh, making any phone calls, uh, uh, I just kept on going south into Mississippi. Uh, I returned from there. I went on into Atlanta, and from Atlanta I went to uh, Detroit and then back to Canada. Before we move on, I think it important to note that there are places in Ray's story where he is obviously not telling all he knows. As mentioned earlier, Ray always refused to reveal who helped him escape from federal prison. According to Bill Pepper, Ray had been a convict for most of his adult life, and he lived by the code that you don't tell on people. And while Ray says it was only Raul that he met on his two trips to New Orleans, it may have been not just Raul. Ray's first lawyer, Art Haynes, told me about an interesting piece of evidence that turned up in Ray's Mustang, a matchbook cover had a New Orleans phone number written on mm-hmm. it. He forbade us to look into it and go beyond it. Then there is the matter of the four excellent false identities that Ray used while he was on the run from the law. This is the late Phil Melanson, who wrote one of the early books on the murder of King. The alias's question is crucial because it was unexplained by official investigations and it's obviously central to this case. James Earl Ray was able to use the names of people who looked like him, who were totally innocent, and in the case of Mr. Galt, who shared uncanny characteristics with Ray, when Ray had no capacity to have gone to Toronto and scouted these names out or gotten them from a file. Over the years, Ray would offer vague explanations as to how he came by these identities, like maybe he got them out of a phone book. But someone had to have provided them to Ray, and he would never say who. Melanson's theory was that Ray, whose role in this crime seemed to be that of the fall guy, understood that more people involved would not make him look more innocent. And beyond that, exposing other people 
might well get him killed. So as we move forward, it is important to know that Ray did not tell everything he knew, even to proven friends like Bill Pepper. So Ray was arrested in Great Britain and then sent back to Memphis where he was kept out of sight. As Judge Haynes explained, the more familiar he and his father became with the evidence, the more certain they were that they would win the case. But Ray's enforced isolation presented a problem because everyone knew from all the reports that their client was the monster who had shot Dr. King. But no one had seen him. And as Arthur Haynes said, if they were going to have a chance to win the case, they would need to change the visuals. He still remained the great mystery man. Nobody had ever seen him. There was no picture of him. There were no perp walks in those days. You had this great mystery man. All in all, he was being crucified in the press of the world. And we felt like we needed to do something to at least stem the tide. So the lights were on all the time, and we talked to Ray about it, and he said, yeah, it's sort of hard to sleep. So we thought this is a great opportunity, number one, to parade out the great fiend and let the world see that he's just a little petty criminal, and number two, to start the whole proceedings with a lock cinch winning decision. So we filed a motion to turn off the lights, that it was cruel and unusual punishment, and to turn off the lights so that he could sleep at night. Oh, it was a great day in Memphis. They had reserved a large room for the press. There were no cell phones, of course, uh, with telephones. And in comes the great fiend to the courtroom to hear the motion to turn off the lights. I'll never forget it. Ray was on the stand, and ultimately, the crucial question was asked. Mr. Ray, are the lights on in your cell 24 hours a day? His answer was, yes, they were. And then the coup de grace was to come. And my dad asked him, and how does that affect you, Mr. Ray? And I will tell you word for word his answer. Oh, it doesn't bother me none. <laughs> A typical James Earl Ray move. Uh, and I, I use this example with my trial students because uh, the lesson is, you can prepare all you want to, but you never know what a witness is going to say in court. We're back in 1968. It's November. And you've been on the case for four months. And you're about to go to trial. The entire world thinks that James Earl Ray murdered King. But you know the prosecution's eyewitness is a fraud, Charlie Stevens. That the supposed, the purported murder weapon is most likely a plant. And the motive given to Ray is a fabrication. But virtually everyone else in the universe thinks the case is a slam dunk for the prosecution. You're 26. Were you ever, did you have any apprehension or any fear? That is the advantage of being a 26-year-old lawyer about to make the opening statement in the trial of the accused killer of Martin Luther King. So all I knew was, of course, we're going to win this one too. We went to the jail. I had spent all Friday with Ray getting ready for the case. I have learned in retrospect that almost immediately upon my leaving the jail on Friday to come back to Birmingham, this lawyer from Texas was, was allowed in, the one that ultimately spent the weekend in the cell with Ray, persuading him to change lawyers. We got there, and interestingly, James Earl Ray and my dad were exactly the same size. We had bought two uh, suits for him to wear at a trial and ties to go with them. And we were going to take him the suits and buck him up a little bit on the eve before trial. When we got to the uh, jail, it was spitting snow. It was right cold that night. When we got to the jail, we were handed a note and it said, thanks for all you've done, but I've decided to change lawyers. So we... We left. I mean, we were just lawyers. We were lawyers doing our, our duty. My dad wore those suits, though, for, for years, and uh, we always called him his James Earl Ray suits. Why was Foreman there? And by there, I mean, why did Foreman push his way into the case? Did you ever wonder about that? 
Did we ever wonder how Foreman got in the case? Only every day from that day until the day my father died. There are a lot of possible answers to that question. I'd like to end with something fun, or what I think is fun. In January of 1970, Ray is locked up for the rest of his life, no trial, and he learns that your dad has been ill and is in the hospital. (laughs) So James Earl Ray sits down and writes to your dad. I'm going to just read it. Dear Arthur, I have read in the paper where you have been a little under the weather. I trust the young nurses will have you back in condition before you receive this letter. Sincerely, James Earl Ray, P.S. At least you don't have Percy Foreman for a doctor. There's something so simple and human about that, and he's able to look at, I mean, he's in jail for the rest of his life, he's chosen the wrong lawyers, and he's been duped again, and he's able to sort of make a little joke about it. (laughs) That's exactly it. So why did celebrity attorney Percy Foreman, at the very last moment, push his way into the case. As Judge Haynes says, not a day went by that they didn't wonder about that. And they came up with a bunch of possible answers. But as we shall see, the closer you look at Foreman, the darker those answers become. Next time on the MLK Tapes. Truth of the matter is, Percy Foreman was the biggest fraud and blowhard I ever encountered in over 50 years of practicing law. Before he came to the, to the jail and seen me, he told me that if I would uh, dismiss Haynes and hire him, he wouldn't get involved in any literary contracts. Mm-hmm. He financed the trial. I saw absolutely no evidence of any inclination or willingness on his part to defend that case as it should have been defended. And the first report came in and said, this is going to be the easiest case I've ever had in my life. There's no evidence at all. Did you ever feel that you could ever do more than save his life? Never at any time, and so told him from the day I came in. And he never expected anything else from the first, and I never expected to accomplish this. You had a government case where ballistics were weak. You had a key eyewitness who was an alcoholic. Uh, Doesn't that bring the odds down to a little better than 100%? Wouldn't that give you a fighting chance for reasonable doubt? Thanks for listening to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. This podcast is not specifically endorsed by the King family or the King estate. The MLK Tapes is written and hosted by Bill Klaper. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Ben Kiebrick. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, with producers Jamie Albright and Meredith Stedman. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover art by Mr. Soul 216, with photography by Artemis Jenkins. Special thanks to Owen Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, The Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Envision Business Management, and Station 16. If you have questions, you can visit our website, themlktapes.com. We posted photos and videos related to the podcast on our social media accounts. You can check them out at the MLK Tapes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, Please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.